So we're going to move on now from Rock You Sinners to our second feature on this particular pod. And that is a film from 1958. So very shortly after Rock You Sinners. And that is The Golden Disc. So let's hear all about that. I hand you over to Matthew for the synopsis. The synopsis is... Struggling musicians Harry and Joan decide to supplement their income by converting the tired old cafe recently purchased by Joan's Aunt Sarah into a swish new coffee bar replete with modern decor, gadget espresso machine and a jukebox full of rock and skiffle. And in the process, discover a new singing star in the shape of teenage pop sensation Terry Dean. Expanding into the world of vinyl with the addition of a record shop and an instantly successful independent record label, the pair seem set for success. But their plans are nearly scuppered when a slightly crooked record mogul tries to steal their label from under their noses, but with the help of a friendly American record executive, they turn tables and the label, and presumably the coffee bar, is saved. The end. Fabulous. Okay, so another... Very, very detailed uh, plot <laughs> there with twists and turns and a uh, deep, deep intellectual property. Um, what did you think <laughs> of this one then? Well, the more I've seen this film, and I've watched it a few times to, to prepare for this, the more I see this film, the more I like it. Now, this may be a form of Stockholm Syndrome <laughs> <laughs> by comparison to the awfulness of Rock You Sinners. And quite a number of the other features we're looking at. And yeah. quite, yes, one or two of the other ones we've looked mm. at and we'll look at. It may be a form of Stockholm Syndrome that any any film that is even slightly competently made seems like a work of absolute genius and relief. By comparison, it may be may just be that. Maybe I'm overstating the case with this film, but I think this I think the Golden Disc is a likable little film. It's Reasonably well directed, it's reasonably well shot, it's got a nice tight script, and I think the humour in it is one of the plus points, and there's little little moments I noticed the few times I've I've watched it within the film. I don't think it's as great a jump uh, between what was expected of it and what was produced as with Band of Thieves. Agreed. Yeah, you know, which we were both you know, both thought sort of well exceeded its brief in terms of entertainment value. It's not as big a, a leap as that, but it is a, an entertaining movie, and the main the main cast bounce off each other pretty well. The, the two main people we're following through it, do, you know, acquit themselves really well. And Terry Dean does his thing, and there's a nice selection of musicians of the time, and in a couple of cases, some valuable footage of these musicians. And it's yeah, it tells a little story. It's a time honoured showbiz tale, anyway. It ticks all the boxes and it doesn't embarrass itself. Yeah, I mean, I, I pretty much agree with with that. I think if you've just watched a, a good film, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, say uh, Gonks Go Beat. No, I don't. I'm, no, let's not no. say that. No, no, I'm joking. No, if you've just watched, I don't know, The Young Ones or even better, Hard Day's Night or something, then yes. this is not going to come off well in comparison. But... <laughs> If you've just seen Rock You Sinners, it really does come off well. Um, and uh, I think it has several critical things going for it. First of all, there seems to be at least a modicum of interest in the protagonists who are in the film of doing the film. Yeah. Um, yes. 
which there doesn't always seem to be in some of these movies. There seems to be a good degree of enthusiasm among the principals. Yes. There's a large element of care and attention and will to do the best they can with what they would have known and what they would have readily admitted was very moderate material. Yes. Uh, And when I say moderate material, I mean, we've got the usual... There's nothing clever about the plot uh, that's any more intricate than any number of these pop films. There's... Mm -hmm. The music isn't particularly special either. Uh, You don't come away from this thinking, wow, that was a great soundtrack. I'm not saying it doesn't have a decent scrap of music in it, because that wouldn't be fair either. It does have one or two very nice bits in it, uh, and we'll come particularly to the musicians of interest later in this, of which there were uh, genuinely interesting musicians in this. Uh, and there were one or two good numbers in it. So it's not bereft of good numbers, but it's not awash with them either. But I do think you you nailed it by saying it was competently made, and I think made with a degree of care. I'm sure it was being made to exploit, broadly speaking, to exploit the rock and roll era and to try and cash in on that zeitgeist as it was. But I think when it's been given to the people involved, they've made a genuine attempt to do an honest, humorous uh, charming film and yes. I think that's what they have achieved with it I I suppose the best barometer I can give it is would I watch it again so if you said to me would I watch Rock You Sinners again <laughs> only if you got the service revolver out of the drawer <laughs> and I knew that it was loaded even if I thought it wasn't loaded, I might risk it. You do know I've still got those negatives, don't you? Ah, oh, yes. Well, that that yeah, could compel me. That box. also could compel yes. me to watch Rock You Sinners, but it would be something as strong as that. Um, whereas <laughs> the Golden Disc, I'd happily do it again. Maybe a couple yeah. of bevies first. Uh, yeah. But no, I, I would definitely watch it again. It is a it is a fun film, and what I really do like about it, uh, first of all, the historic references in there regarding the musicians and we will talk about that later Hmm. but what this film's got which rock you sinners didn't was the right references to rock and roll it's coffee bar based and at that time in britain this wasn't the case in america very different genesis of rock and roll in america to britain but for britain the breeding ground of rock and roll of British rock and roll were the coffee bars and Soho in particular. Um, Yes, absolutely. And this one, though it doesn't use any of the famous coffee bar shop fronts as its reference point, it creates a new one of its own, probably for licensing reasons and for plot reasons, whatever. (laughs) But it does go into that culture as its fulcrum, as its base, And I think that's right. And the star that it pushes forward was a genuine coffee shop star of the day. Yeah, he'd risen up directly from it. I I get the feel that this is somewhere much closer to the zeitgeist of British rock and roll than Rock You Sinners was. Or perhaps they were... Two sides of the same coin. That might be. Well, they was, were because Rock You Sinners explores the the sort of the dance, dance hall, the side dance hall of it, side, of and it. and more explicitly exploits the 
uh, jazz roots of yeah. of um, although there's some jazz in this, but it does exploit the jazz roots of rock and roll in this country. Yeah, so more. maybe maybe whereas this, this film, I think it's the Yin and the Yang. Yeah, I it? think that might be that might be fairer. Uh, perhaps I felt this one was more on the nail. By mm. which I don't mean that there was anything edgy or <laughs> about it at all. <laughs> Nothing edgy about edgy it is not. this movie at all. It's a very comfortable, comfortable slippers movie. This particular one, it's it's <laughs> it wouldn't have made anybody even at the time think, oh, that rock and roll is terrible business. But it might have done. You never know. And the other thing it's got over, say, Rock You Sinners, is the star mm. it's pushing forward. That the teen or early twenties star is. A teen, early twenties. He's he, yeah. whereas the, he in, was eighteen. Yeah, he, he would have just been eighteen yeah. when he made this. So yeah. he, he, in Rock You Sinners, most of the musicians and stars in it were were definitely in their thirties or beyond. Yes. Uh, so this is much nearer the nail on that front. All in all, a, a decent little film, and one or two interesting people in it. Certainly some interest in the musicians. So. Mm. Shall yes. we start talking about those folks? Let's start first with um, with Terry Dean himself, because this is this film was basically yeah. a, a vehicle to push to push his career. Mm. And um, after Tommy Steele, he was one of the first individual rock and roll stars yeah, was, this country yeah. had produced. As we said in the Six Fast Special uh, podcast, uh, George Martin was was smarting Martin was smarting over. Uh, over over having just missed Tommy Steele. He did, yeah. He saw him perform, didn't he, with the Vipers. With the Vipers Skiffle group, that's right. And he and he took the group but said Ditch the lead singer, which was uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well it wasn't his greatest decision. Really it wasn't, not wasn't George Martin's greatest decision. Mm. Um and so uh, and, and obviously George Martin tried to find his own Tommy Steele in the form of Jim Nearly Dale. He did Jim Dale, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But there were other people who had similarly had Tommy Steele under their noses. And mm. one of whom um was an ex wrestler by the name of Paul Lincoln, aka mm. Doctor Death, who, um, <laughs> who by uh, the late fifties had um, to make ends meet had become the manager of the Two Eyes Coffee Bar. So he was actually the manager of the the famous Two Eyes Coffee Bar. Yeah, the most famous of those. Coffee yeah, and and he himself had had uh, Tommy Steele performing in there right under his nose, and somebody else had got in before him, um, and. Yeah, become his manager and wished him a wedding success. So he was on the lookout for his own Tommy Steele. And uh, in cahoots with a um, a promoter called Jaime Zal, it was a very successful West End promoter, and the two of them set out looking for it and found Terry Dean literally in the in the bar. And he'd, uh, Terry Dean already had a little bit of form because he had worked with Rory Blackwell a little while before. Rory Blackwell, who, uh, of course, we talked about in, uh, in Rock You Sinners and had a, quite a good track record of discovering... <laughs> names didn't he you know yeah Georgie that's fame. right because as we said in the first half georgie fame yeah mm. and um dean had been introduced to rory blackwell through a lady called margaret russell who was a mutual acquaintance and she later on uh, became the i think third mrs jean vincent wow for a couple of years when he when he was based over here so jean vincent's soon-to-be wife gave terry dean his step up into uh into into rock and roll um, but that didn't work out with Robbie Blackwell, largely because uh, Dean was a bit, uh, as as was proved, had was he was unstable, wasn't he? He was like, yeah, basically, he was, mm. yeah, he was, he was emotionally uh, delicate individual. Yeah, very um, much so. Yeah, 
and uh, and it that didn't work out. So he was back playing the coffee bars. End up with Paul Lincoln, and he was signed to Decca um, through Dick Rowe, the much maligned Dick Rowe, the man who famously turned down the Beatles later on. Yes, a poor unfortunate Dick Rowe. Yeah, he carries the yeah, can, doesn't yeah. he, for for not signing the Beatles without reference to the fact that. Pretty much everybody else also didn't sign the Beatles. And in exactly. fairness, George Martin didn't want to sign the Beatles either. No. You know, he's he credited, kind of pressured into it, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's kind of credited <laughs> as being the man who could see their potential. But George Martin could only see their potential when he actually met them and bantered with them for a while. When he heard yeah. their music, he thought what everybody else thought, and that was this a bit of a rough-and-ready rock-and-roll group from the provinces... With a not-very-good drummer. Who, ..who don't seem to be offering me any anything... <laughs> that I haven't heard before, and they've got a terrible drummer. So, uh, yeah. you know, Ditro <laughs> does get a bad press, yeah. you know. They yeah, wasn't let getting... alone all the, all the huge amount of success with all the other artists. Yeah, with loads had. of other artists with Decca. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. anyway, that moves on. Yeah. I was going to so, mention, looking, obviously, mm. at this point in The Two Eyes history, because it's quite interesting on The, on the Two Eyes, this film mm. uh, focuses on the coffee bar as the launch pad, and Terry Dean, yes. in the movie, finds stardom much greater stardom in the film than he ever did in real <laughs> life. Right. I mean, he has number one records yeah. in this movie, whereas it's, he got It's to... a bit like the small faces in, um, in um, Dateline Diamonds. Yeah. Just coming back from their world-conquering tour yeah, of America. Yeah, so they hadn't had a hit then. But, um, no. <laughs> so he gets to about number, what is it, 18, 15 and 16 are his three top 20 marks. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying yeah. that's shoddy, but it, it's no. not... He never... Got as far as he really should have done. And actually, I I do feel for Terry. We'll come in a minute to what happened mm. to Terry Dean. But I do feel mm. that, that Terry Dean was a missed opportunity. I do think he had talent. Yes. I think he was a pretty yeah. good singer. Obviously, he was unstable. And that was probably always mm. going to be his undoing, regardless, irrespective yes. of whether he'd had a number one record or, or didn't have a number one record. He was always on a yes. sort of spiral trajectory. But... I do think he he had a good voice, and I think had he been allowed to sing mm. the music he really wanted to sing, yeah, he wanted to sing quite tough rock and roll, yeah. and um, as has been borne out in his later performances mm. when he came back, um, he generally plays you know quite tough rock and roll, and but he unfortunately was under the thumb of Dick Rowe and his choices of music, which were often a bit anodyne. And despite the fact that he sings it well, well... a white sports coat. White sport coat and a pink carnation is barely, barely qualifies as a rock and roll song, does it? No, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's country pop, really, would you say? I don't know. It's... Yeah, no, it's, it's not great. And, and he was never really given the, the, that sort of move it hit. No, he never had the, that, did he? The, the, I mean, in fairness, it happened to almost all the rock and rollers. Billy Fury, mm. despite making The Sound of Fury an excellent rock and roll album... Yes, maybe Colette was a, a rock and roll single for him, but there yeah. weren't many. There were mainly no. big sort of ballads, which he automatically, through his charisma and his brilliant vocals, turned into, gave him a rock and roll edge, like the one we do in yes. Cool Britannia last night was made for love. He gives it a little bit of zing, mm. but they're they're, mm-hmm. they're essentially big ballads, um, and yeah. of course Cliff did have big rock and roll numbers, but he didn't stay there very long in that in that. I- no. Ilk, he went. Well, at least much that's more. where we started. But he did do a few at the start, you know. Yeah. Tommy Steele didn't so stay very long in rock and roll numbers, and his no. were rather pastiche. No. I found. Um, yeah, well, it's a lot of in it for him. It's um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. 
uh, and the two eyes had had all of those guys. Well, they didn't have Billy Fury, but they had yeah. T- Tommy Steele and Cliff Richard. They also had Adam Faith. Yeah, uh, did they? Started oh, off in the them. two yeah, eyes yeah. as well. Anyway, off for those guys. Back onto Terry Dean because, of course, we find mm. him here in this movie, and I think he doesn't really make enough of an impression. He's a very passive character, isn't he? He's a very passive yeah, character. Yeah, as, as a sort of launch pad for him, he's not a very exciting personality in it. And he's rather sort of um, quiet. And it's probably not his fault again. I mean, what, he can only do what, what he's asked to do. And what he's yeah. asked to do, he does just fine. You know, I mean, his performance mm. is, is fine. It's not like it's he's... Like, it's not embarrassing. No, no, his acting's OK. You know, I mean, he's given yeah. a brief few lines. When he does that line, you got to have charm, personal charm. He's talking <laughs> to the kid you know, about to yeah. record it. He comes across very nicely. But it doesn't give him that rock and roll edge again as a launch pad no. for him. It doesn't allow him to be sort of surly. Well, and There's literally nothing rebellious about no. his demeanour in, in always music, particularly in this either. It's I mean, even Cliff, in some of his very early roles, yeah. is a little bit delinquent. He is a little bit sneery, you know. Yep. Yeah. I do think, in terms of Terry's numbers in this, I did think... Mm. Um, Come on and be loved was a good number. Yeah, that's a nice one. That's probably the best of his of his selections here. Yeah, it, it's definitely the best number in this. And in fact, he did return to that. So later, when he recorded a rock and roll album, I think it was about two thousand six or something. So quite yes. latterly, he included yeah. that number in it. So he obviously also okay. thought yeah. this was a good number. And I think that is a, a good song. Could have been beefed up. Uh, a little bit I think bit if it more. had a tougher arrangement, yeah. if it had like a slinkier, yeah. tougher arrangement. But he was, um, I think it was Malcolm Lockyer did his arrangements. Right. He was like a, yeah. a general just a arrangement guy. Did yeah. the music for a Doctor Who film with Peter Cushing later on. But, Look, um, Malcolm Lockyer was a, was a good arranger, um, yeah. uh, but his brief would have been to make it broadly appealing, I'm sure. Yeah, and it is broadly possible, appealing. It? Yeah. What it isn't is striking rock and roll. But I do think that that yeah. number in particular, the other ones are throwaway. The candy floss is quite icky. Yeah, oh, that's, that's the worst, I think, of the selections here. There's about three or four numbers, Personal Charm and I can't remember. Yeah. The Golden Age or something. And they're all yeah. pretty... Non-offensive, but non-memorable. Was anodyne is the word I always think of? Uh, anodyne yeah. is absolutely correct. I, I think yeah. "Come On and Be Loved" is the one that I would take out of that. And go, no, that was a solid song. And as I say, there's nothing wrong with Terry's performance in here. It's no better or worse than a lot of other early pop stars in a rock film. Certainly yeah. no worse than Billy Fury in Play It Cool. No, no goodness me. Yeah, for, yes, well, we were, we were speaking about him earlier, weren't we? Yes. Uh, which we'll come to at a later installation. But the film doesn't give him much room to roam. And in fact, you can see that the, the focus of the actual drama is with some of the other leads in there. But let's go back to what happened to Terry because of course A, this film didn't do that well for him so it didn't make Mm. much of an impression in the box office and he didn't get a big hit single out of it Come On and Be Loved well it didn't top 40 and although he was shortly to have another hit with Stairway of Love a number 16 hit with that that was it for him and after that his his, uh, popularity fell away 
Yeah. Partly due to the reputation he got, didn't it? Yeah, because there were a few incidences uh, of sort of drunken behaviour and mm. he was famously caught in just his underpants and a pair of carpet <laughs> slippers singing to a tramp and he Him smashed as well, a shop eh? window and there was... Yeah, oh, yes. Well, it's just an average Friday night for me. It's not... Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, and there, there were a number of instances like that that got him... Um, yeah. Some press that his management said. I mean, they say don't don't read your press, weigh it. But it's in Terry Dean's. Th- it was very much against the grain that his um, that his uh, management and record company wanted. For you his see, image, yeah. you see, I think being caught out in your underpants. I think that's a bad mistake. <laughs> but I I think the carpet slippers is potentially genius. You know, so I well, think he was he was thinking ahead. I mean, you could have weather, turned that you know. around. Yeah, mind you, it depends what carpet <laughs> slippers you've got. I I'm currently wearing carpet slippers. And they are a mm. rather nice pair of Edwardian style. You know the the jobs. They're very nice. They're very yeah. David Niven. Oh, oh, they're nice. You see, they're they're, the, they're, they are, aren't they? They're sort of what's that leatherette kind of look? Is it? Yeah. Or, well, it's leather. It's, it's actually you can yeah. polish Ooh. these bad boys, so you Ooh. can expect maybe um, Professor Higgins from My Fair Lady to be donning a it's pair very of these much or something kind of like that. Um, by George, I think he's got them. Oh, I've got I've got corduroy ones, by the way. These are corduroy, <laughs> oh, well, so they're not polishable. Again, a stylish know. choice, corduroy though. Um, and yeah, I corduroy think slippers. If enough. you were caught in your, again, it depends what your duds were. But uh, <laughs> a, a reasonable pair of underpants, and that it could be all right, you know. But moving on, yeah. um, yes, yeah, so that's all. Think of Terry Dean's underpants, and he, he was he he was of course married to Edna Savage. That's right, the pop singer, and he was obsessed with her. The marriage didn't last very long. He was always getting drunk and then proclaiming his love for Edna Savage. Uh, yes, and it just yeah. didn't go well for yeah. him. And she was sort of a traditional pop singer, wasn't she? she yeah. Was sort of- yeah. yeah, and uh, yeah, that that was a big strain. And then he was called up into the army. Yeah, because uh, I think the um, establishment, in quotes, wanted to make a sort of example of one of the rock and rollers. And sort yeah, of, they did because it was. This is at the point where national service in Britain is winding down. It's still there, mm. but it's winding down. I think they got him in deliberately as a kind of way of encouraging the youth to keep on the right side of national service and to th- make it still a valid thing. I believe. Dean's management thought they could make a, you know, like Elvis, it was a big publicity thing when Elvis joined the army. Yeah, they, they could, could do something similar with him. him. Isn't he a regular guy? Look, he's doing his national service. Yeah, and he's doing his bit. He's an upstanding young man as well. And there was a big publicity drive. He just wanted to, if he had to do it, he just wanted to go in and do it quietly. But they sent him in a week ahead, you know, a week early, and with all the cameras there and everything. Here's Terry inspecting his new, new lodgings and everything. And he went in, had his hair cut, went in, and he lasted, I think, about two days, you know, before the, before the doctors signed him up. It turns out he had, I think he had three different psychiatrist notes from three different doctors saying, look, this guy is not stable enough to, to cope with life in the army. You know, it's, mm. this is not your man. This is not your man. And, and to, to the army's credit, to his army doctor's credit, he took him seriously and he was, you know, yeah, look, yeah, all right, wait, we understand, you know, but we can't take you out straight away. But that was, there was a lot of negative publicity and loads of Ted, Teddy boys in the audience and blokes sort of going, you sissy Terry Dean, can't take the army like a man, you know, and there was a lot of that sort of attitude. And the newspapers went really anti him. It was a real build them up, knock them down thing. And yeah. yeah, when this incident happened, and it kind of killed his career. Poor fellow. And it wasn't his fault. It really wasn't his fault. No, and he clearly, and, he clearly wasn't. Mentally cut out for the 
for superstar them no. anyway. No. Somebody said he, he he could barely cope with civilian life, let alone um, army life. You can see that from everything that that happened to him, that big mega stardom would have chewed him up and spat him out and thing. But yeah. what the happy ending to this story is, of course, that although he left the pop scene in the, in 64... He quit entertainment entirely, yeah. Yeah, and became an evangelist. He got religion, didn't he? Only did gospel music if he... Yeah, yeah, he did come back to singing again and to singing rock and roll again because it was his love. He did. And what, what's really nice is that he ended up sort of doing OK within within that parameter, you know, goes on... the rock on, circuit, on the rock and roll revival circuit. Yeah, on circuit, the rock and roll revival it? circuit. He probably, in the end, got just enough that can allow him to do what gives him pleasure. It's just happened yes. later in life. Well, it's not always your time when you're a teenager, you know, and it's no. uh, regardless of talent, it's not always your time. Yeah, there's some nice footage of him in latter years, sort of, especially with members of his old band, the Dinos, his... Yeah, joining him yeah. on stage and things. It's yeah. No, he's 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 done all right in the end, Terry Dean, and he's still with us. He's still a presence. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. No, good, good for him. Good for Terry Dean. Yeah, and as I say, I did think he was a, f- a fellow who had considerable vocal talent. Yes, he's got a nice voice. He's got a good voice. Mm. And in one or two of the points in there, he actually shows a bit of power because most of the time it's a very yeah. caressing sound. But there's one or two mm. times in the film where he sings with a bit more guts about him. Yeah. Um, and you can see he's got more about him than he's given chance to vent in this. There's a couple of his B-sides uh, yeah, where he's, he's allowed to let rip a yeah. little bit more. And even, um, even his version of a white sport coat, for, for all its sort of anodyne quality... Compare it to the King Brothers version, mm. which was actually a bigger hit, the King Brothers version, where they're singing it all in unison, like a yeah. sort of proto-version of um, Harper's Bazaar or something. But he actually sort of gives it a bit of welly as much as he can. He's trying to you know, push it within the confines of the song and the arrangement. He's trying to give it as much as he can. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a shame. It's just a shame that he never, never quite got the right musical platform to express his talents. Yes, indeed. Of course, the other thing about Terry Dean's performance in this film, which is truly remarkable, <laughs> is the Terry Dean method, by which I don't mean anything oh. sexual. <laughs> I mean the guitar Wait, no, no. method used Terry by Terry Dean. Dean guitar em- method, yes. Yeah, employed. It's, it's a unique way of approaching the instrument. It really is. It bears examination, I think. It takes a lot of skill and technical ability to be able to to play guitar like that, where your hand movements and chord shapes bear no resemblance to the sound coming out of your guitar. So, to, just to put this fairly, at mm. one point in the film, it looks like Terry Dean is playing... Well, it doesn't look like it. He definitely plays the chord of E. He does, at one point. Um, he strums... I think he even switches live. to A at one point. So he plays he E do... and A, I think. Definitely mm. plays E. I have the suspicion he plays A as well. He knows at least two chords. So... I have reason to believe that Terry Dean did know the rudiments, the rudiments of guitar playing. However, when he was filming all the songs in this, and in all of them, apart from You Gotta Have Charm, Personal Charm, apart from that one, he's playing an acoustic guitar, unplugged acoustic, unplugged, unmiked, thankfully, (laughs) acoustic guitar in every song that he does. And yeah. in every song, he plays the same chords, which is kind of, broadly yeah. speaking, a 
not fully barred, simplified F, basic F yeah. shape. But it's not quite that. And when I've I've tried to mimic it as closely as I can on the fretboard mm. by looking at what and played what he was playing in those songs, and it's really horrible. I'm not saying that the noise I make when I play my guitar is, uh, you know, the most beautiful <laughs> thing you've ever heard. Uh, but you know, it earns me a living, or did po- yeah. pre-COVID, pre-lockdown, yes, yeah. But when I was playing the Terry Dean method, I haven't mastered it yet. If yeah. by mastering it, it means making a coherent sound, and it bears. <laughs> Do you no have relation. a guitar with you that you can demonstrate? Do you have a guitar with you? you can. I don't you can have one. I can grab oh. up to Mike, uh. and he changes chord often in the song where there is no change in chord. And That's then when right, there is a up. change of chord, he doesn't move to... He doesn't, no. <laughs> so uh, yeah. apologies, Terry. Apologies, Terry, if you're listening. You yeah. know as well as we did that we were playing nonsense on the guitar. But the thing is, he, he clearly knew a couple, of, a few chords on the guitar. And mm. as far as I know, when he, when he began, it was just him and his guitar before he sort of went yeah. full electric in the skiffle days, you know. Um, and... As I understand, his first instrument was the piano. There was a piano in his house yeah. when he was growing up, and that's where he found solace in music in the first mm. instance, pre-rock and roll. So he obviously had some musical ability. And my theory is that the director or the cinematographer said to him, just holding a guitar chord down the end, like he ought to be, doesn't look exciting enough, doesn't look real yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah, I bet so, it was. So, yeah, the kids are never going to believe you're actually playing. So you've got to move your hand up. That's what guitarists do, don't they? I mean, you just go, you can tell somebody who doesn't know how to play guitar yeah. has overruled him and told him how to move his hand. Al- almost certainly. I think that's what happened. You're almost certainly bang on. And I know from having worked in movies myself, mm. I've been in movies where I've been playing music, allegedly. Yes. I mean, you're not really... So once I was in a film which was about Coco Chanel and I was the it was a jazz oh, yeah. band in a hot jazz club from the yes. late forties that we were doing. And I was the band leader. And they didn't have a clue on set. Initially they weren't gonna have a double bass player. They were just gonna have like a guitar and a drummer and a pianist. And I said, yeah. You've got to have a double bass player double and they eventually they they got one on my recommendation. And they yes. they played me the music they were going to play, and it was a, like a big band. And I said, hmm. "Have we got any brass players?" And they said, "No." And I said, "Better get some then." They they got like two, right? And it was a big band thing. Yeah, that's a water sound. That's Absolutely. A water sound. And and when we were when they set us up on the thing, they set us up like a rock band. So we were all standing up like this, you know. And I said, "Yeah, it was yeah, a jazz yeah. band." I would have been sitting in front of the piano player playing rhythm guitar you know yeah, just not gonna... down those, and I yeah. had to do all these little things they had absolutely no idea what it should look and sound like I sorted all of that out and yeah. when it came to the take we were playing there we were playing the music and we were actually making quite a nice sound because the guys were good players these the band mm-hmm. we were making we're quite playing. a nice sound and then they said can you like jump up and down a little bit you know because it's <laughs> jazz music supposed to be fun jump up and down I think they would have jumped up and down and we were like <laughs> we're actual jazz musicians and we're just playing the jazz like we would have done you know yeah. and it's just like <laughs> yeah. no we want them jumping I think they wanted the double bass player to do like the stray cats thing you know of jumping oh, up yeah, and spin the thing round yeah. and jump around and, the double and bass ride thing. it yeah, yeah. and stuff like that like yeah. no jazz bass player ever you know anyway no, no. I, I only say this uh, not as a big I am but as a demonstration that I think you're 
bang on with your uh, analysis of what probably happened. Yeah, yeah. Right, so that's Terry Dean. So, let's move on to the first of the actors. Yes. Uh, and that is the Canadian Lee Patterson. That's right, who plays Harry Blair. Who plays Harry Blair. Now, Harry Blair character is, of course, the composer and the arranger and who is treated in the, for the purposes of this plot as being the big musical talent in this. Terry mm. Dean, the big star that they're trying to promote, but the, the Harry mm. Blair character is the musical talent. Yeah, uh, the he's, com- he's the glue behind the scenes, yeah, isn't he? That's, the that's, that's the Svengali arranger and composer. <laughs> Composter. And it's played by the handsome and... Reasonably charismatic Lee Patterson. Reasonably charismatic yeah, Lee I mean, Patterson. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, well, I don't want to overstate that, um, but I think he handles it with surety in this. And yeah. he forms a sort of triumvirate uh, with his two yes. co-stars, which really yep. works very well. Mary Steele and Linda Gray, where they, they mm. rattle off each other very pleasantly. The timing between the three of mm. them and their rapport is pretty good. It's pretty good. Yes, it has that uh, the essence that you get, I don't know, when you've got a group of people who perhaps spent a reasonable amount of time together and therefore are comfortable with each other and free to say what they want kind of thing. I know that's mm. not the case here. They probably met each other three days before and started <laughs> filming. The first thing, but yeah. that's what the credit here, that's what we're saying, is they've managed to create mm. that vibe or something of mm. that vibe uh, in this short space of time. So Lee Patterson... One of several Canadians working in Britain at the time, wasn't he? There was, Absolutely. There, there, was, there was a few... I mean, obviously, um, uh, Rock You Sinners, there's a mm. you know, the Canadian lead in that. Around about the same time, there was the same company as made this, made um, Cover Girl Killer with Harry H. And that's got a Canadian lead in it. Yeah, we talked about that in um, a review recently for Talking Pictures TV, the Cover Girl Killer... That's right, their podcast. Um, yeah, their podcast. Donald Sutherland was, was over here at the time. Yeah, it was a yep. lot of... Um, and and in talk- fact, there was behind the scenes, there were a lot of directors and TV Well, we TV talked earlier in The well. Young Ones, didn't we? Because Sidney J. Fury, mm. himself a Canadian, worked in That's there. That's right. There's quite a lot of Canadians involved. And I think mm. probably a lot of them were coming to the UK because they would get a better run-up at movies in the UK than they mm. would if they had to mm. compete in the US. And, of yeah. course, being Canadian in the UK meant that you could play all the American roles. Yeah, you could pass as American. Because, we wouldn't tell the difference, really, with the yeah. accent. I yeah. mean, he was in Reach for the Sky, uh, Lee Patterson. That's right, yeah. Quite yeah, a yeah. reasonable role in that. One of the flight commanders <laughs> of the Canadian squadron that uh, Douglas Bader, uh, Kenneth Moore, okay. um, yes. takes charge of. Um, mm-hmm. He was in a film I saw... Gosh, it may be a while ago now on Talking Pictures, which was called Time Lock from 57, so it's previous to this one. He was the dad whose son gets locked in a bank vault um, by mistake. And, of course, the bank vault's only got a finite amount of air in there, so they're trying to get him out, and there's a whole set of reasons why they can't get him out. And interestingly enough, Sean Connery is one of the guys who's trying to get him out of there but can't. And he was in The Good Die Young with um, Lewis Gilbert. Yes. That Lewis Gilbert directed. Great director. Yes. And another Bond connection yeah. there, because Lewis Gilbert was a yeah, regular absolutely. Bond contributor. And then he went to TV in America, really, didn't he? That's right. He he was most famously, he did, um, in the early 60s, he did a reasonably well-remembered beachfront detective show mm. 
called Surfside Six. It sure was um, set in Miami. S- yeah, that's right, Miami, Florida. That was sort of a, <laughs> a, a sort of sister show to Seventy Seven Sunset Strip. It's in that sort of yeah. Dave Thorne, he was in that. That's right, Dave Thorne, and he's the sort of fellow you can tell he's um, sort of fellow that would look good with his shirt off in a pair of budgie smugglers, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. And that's quite a well remembered, particularly in America, is quite a well remembered show, and particularly for its theme tune, it's got quite a much parodied uh, cheesy theme tune. Uh, yeah. Surfside Six, um, and yeah, from there he went on to sort of daytime. Daytime soaps in America, a lot of uh, a lot of that sort of work, and you know, by the eighties he was in sort of Magnum and the A Team and that sort of supporting roles in popular TV shows like that. He's yep. an Airplane Two, yes, he is He's an Airplane the sequel, two. yeah, <laughs> Airplane Two, the sequel, yes, yeah, not as good as the first one, but it's quite a funny, uh, quite a funny movie. And he worked with Michael Winner a bit towards the end. He, he, he um, he's in Death Wish Three. Mm. Yeah, because yeah, because they got better and better. Death Wish, Death Wish <laughs> one was good. Yeah, Death Wish two. But yeah, he said, "I think we can improve on this." So he did Death Wish two, and Michael Winner said, "No, I think we can still climb that mountain." So <laughs> up he went to Death Wish three, probably the peak of the Death Wish movies, I think. And um, and yeah, uh, <laughs> he, he's in that, and he's also in um, a few years later. He was in the film Bullseye, also for Michael Winner, which has got Michael Caine and Roger Moore both in it. He appears in that. No connection whatsoever to Jimbo and, and the 80s television series. <laughs> Absolutely Although not. Although we but, kind um, of in a way a of... wish that Michael Caine had been in, in that, yes. <laughs> but yes, a bit of bully. Yeah. So, yeah, nice uh, yeah, Decent Career does a... F- does an absolutely fair job in this. I, uh, yeah. He's good. So. He's fine. He, yeah, he, it's fine. It's, he a, it's, a, it's a definition of solid, isn't it? It's yeah. just... It's fine. It's and fine. like I say, he has the distinction of being able to create that vibe with our next protagonist, who is Mary Steele. Mary Steele, mm. playing Joan Farmer, yep. the frustrated singer Joan Farmer, finding herself, uh, well, we talk about it in a bit, uh, on the, her character finds herself on the wrong end of the generation line, doesn't she? Well, that's another thing that I do like about this film. Mary Steele, as we've seen that t- traditional early 50s, virulin-influenced style of vocal... And the film demonstrates that that is clearly passé now. It's Mm. bang out of style. It's passé news. And the crowds turn off when she starts singing. Now, they turn off not after a big rock and roller. They turn off after Dennis Lotus, who we will come to later. And we'll talk about some interesting comparisons, which we've got. About stars and music later, (laughs) when we come to Dennis Lotus. But suffice to say that the comparison with her is made at the Dennis Lotus point. So then the Mm. film jumps forward. That's that's good, actually. It starts with that being the top. And then we move past that. That's a good point. In this film itself, we move to the point where Mm. you can see that the Dennis Lotus style is now just about to be binned. So I mm, like mm. that about this film. It's got that kind of line in it, which, yes. again, shows a greater understanding of what is happening with rock and roll than Rock You Sinners did. Yes, yes, indeed. But as in terms of her performance, I think she gives a very creditable performance. I think it's a strong performance. Yeah, yeah. and it's a very, it's very perky. Perky is the word, really, isn't it? Yeah. But I think she's got some quite nice lines that she delivers really well, I think. i tell you what I like about her, her performance, and it's another thing that I like about this film in general, and that mm. is it doesn't mess about. Mm. This film never really messes about occupying screen time with nonsense that doesn't need to be there. Mm. Her performance, Mary Steele's performance, that is, 
has none. It's economical. It's to the point. It's bright. It's sharp. It's peaky. It does what it needs to do without any confusion or blurred lines. It's it's a nice performance. And, of course, in real life, um, Mary Steele was uh, the wife of the director. She was Mrs Don Sharp. She was. In real life. She was, yeah. Yeah, and we will come to him later, but she was the... The wife of the director. She had a pretty decent uh, career, nothing too special. They get round about this time. She was yeah. in the Human Jungle, excellent Herbert Lom series. Oh, was she? Um, and quite a bit of other telly, Emergency Ward 10. Ah, yes. She was in Carver Name with Pride with uh, Virginia McKenna. Yes. Just a small role. Yeah, um, yeah. But I saw that. And she was in Sir Lancelot TV. Yeah, oh, with uh, William Russell. With yeah. William Russell, yeah. Yeah, that sort of stuff. And uh, sort of petered out. Yeah, I think she... I think she left acting to to raise their family i think is what yeah. happened um and there's a little connection about their family but i'll I'll save that yeah so nothing else really to say about that it's a likable performance yeah. from a, a likable actor let's go to linda gray who plays aunt sarah yeah she's a facilitator in the plot she's the woman mm. who makes everything happen endless positivity from this lady and bottomless purse strings bottomless yeah purse absolutely strings, look of it as well Absolutely. We all need someone like that in our lives. Yeah. I think her career, which is, again, reasonably extensive, going from 1938 into the 70s, so this was bang in the middle of that, I I don't know for sure, but I'd be willing to stake my reputation such as it is (laughs) on her being middle-aged at a very young age. Yes. Um, and playing that dependable lady quite a lot. Mm. Yes. I can't say I've seen her in anything else, but it wouldn't surprise me if that was the case. She was also in Sir Lance a lot, by the way. In fact, mm. Mm. she was in the same episode as uh, Mary Steele. Oh, well, I never. Yeah. That's a nice connection. And that was just the year before the Golden Disc. She plays Lady Twit Hampton in Up the Front. With Frankie oh, Howard. Oh, yes, that's one of the Frankie Howard yeah. uh, up Pompeii franchise, yes. Anyway, that's Linda Gray. Um, so then there was a very interesting fella uh, who played the dastardly record producer in this. Yeah, Ronald Adam. Who wants to take advantage of Lucky Charm Records, take them That's you know, right, for and to, you know, swallow them up, swallow them up for his own ends, yes, and his own success. But he was actually a, a, something of a, uh, a war hero, twice over. Yeah, yeah, in both world wars, wasn't it? Yeah, so he, uh, he was only... Um, uh, a youngster, obviously, during the First World War, he signed up, he volunteered... Uh, when 17 years old, to join the Royal Flying Corps, as it was. It wasn't the Royal Air Force, it was the Royal Flying Corps. And he served um, initially as an observer, but then retrained as a pilot and started flying the SOP with camels. And he did a number of of raids and and, uh, flights there in in World War I before being Mm. shot down... Uh, almost certainly by the Red Baron, Manfred von Richthofen. Ah, von Richthofen, yes. Yes, indeed. Yes. Um, yes. Who, uh, uh, which resulted in being in, in hospital initially because he was caught behind Emily. Uh, Emily? See Emily play. Uh, Emily Lines. Emily Lines. She's a lovely girl. Emily Lines. Lovely How girl. is Emily these days? Nice. Yeah, she's very good. Yeah. yeah, straight up and down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, he was then in 
obviously in a prison camp after that. But I've reason to believe he, he was reasonably well treated. They received a note from the Red Baron with his compliments, oh. obviously complimenting on his flying just prior to the moment when he made the mistake of being shot by the Red Baron. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like in Blackadder where he went, oh, and uh, little fellow, if you get lonely in tonight, my bedroom's just downstairs. It's no trouble. <laughs> well, I couldn't say it definitely wasn't, but let's, uh, no. let's, uh, let's assume no, it let's, wasn't. Let's not These cast aspersions. Gentlemen let's... flyers, I think, is what we're they talking certainly about. Were. So I think he was yes. treated... I, I'm almost certain he was probably treated with a fair amount of honour by the Red Baron um, uh, yes. uh, who shot him down. And then, yes. uh, having... Caught the acting bug. He did a little bit of acting between the wars before rejoining the RAF in the second instance, uh, okay. becoming a wing commander. He wasn't in active flying service, but what he mm. was doing is he was a flight coordinator. He was working in fighter command, um, okay. which was obviously responsible um, for... Uh, coordinating the Spitfires and the Hurricanes in their yes. duties defending Britain during the Battle of Britain. So, of course, wow. it's great having Spitfires and Hurricanes, but if, if they're not in the right yeah. place at the right time, they're yeah. useless. You don't know where to point them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. so his contribution, as with all the other flight coordinators and flight commanders who did that, uh, is very, very highly regarded during the Second mm. World War. So he had an illustrious uh, career and was ordered to the OBE yeah. in 1946. So it goes to wow, show... Wow, rightly so. Yeah, rightly it goes so, to show what he yeah. was. Following that, he went back into acting initially on stage mm. uh, before going into film and television, which is where we find him in this film. Well, the year before, interesting, it's a film we mentioned briefly in the first half of this, is that he appears in the movie Kill Me Tomorrow... Mm. Um, which is a straight drama film, but features a cameo from Tommy Steele ah. and is cited as the first, although Rock You Sinners was the first film entirely about uh, rock and roll, the first film to feature it was Kill Me Tomorrow by mm. Terence Fisher. And he features in that. So he's in two of the very earliest right. rock and roll movies that this country made. He was also in Reach for the Sky which we mentioned earlier. Oh, yes. He was certainly typecast uh, in a way because he was playing an air vice marshal, so he, um. <laughs> he was playing to type. Uh, <laughs> and he was also in Around the World in 80 Days, the Michael Todd movie with David Niven. And he was in The Naked Truth, oh, which is an excellent Oh, that's a great movie, Peter film. Sellers. Yeah, Terry really Thomas. Really good film, that. I like that. Peggy Mount, Dennis Price, Shirley Eaton, Jones Sims, Jones Sims all in that. that right? yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Fabulous film. Yeah. He had that sort of authority figure, sort of face and personality, didn't he? So Ideal casting for the record company guy yeah. in this. You know, you need that older, outwardly gentlemanly kind of guy, yeah. but who's uh, underneath his waiting to turn the tables. No, he's very good. I know, he's fine. He's, he's, he had this. Yeah. This was, would have been an easy role for him, uh, and he does perfectly well. As does Peter Dinley. Yeah, Peter Dinley. Um, playing Mr. Washington, the uh, his American counterpart, who comes in yeah. and effectively saves the day. Yeah. Weirdly, Peter Dinley, despite being an English actor, he did spend time in Canada. So, I mean, but again, yeah. he played Another a lot Canadian of American Canadian. characters. And the big thing mm. you will know about Peter Dinley is not only was he voicing in Thunderbirds, but he is the countdown for Thunderbirds. Five, five. Yeah. Four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's him. That is him. Uh, well, I never. 
So he was, yeah. yeah, he was in Thunderbirds. Yeah, as one of the voices. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, as and... one of the voice actors. But it's him, it's his voice you hear doing the countdown at the beginning. It absolutely is. So that's genuinely something for the ages, isn't it? It is. Because previously we had the voiceover for... This is a journey into sound. That's the lad, that's... Jeffrey Sumner. Jeffrey Sumner we've had before. That's right, in Band of Thieves. And now we have Peter Dinley who played Jeff Tracy, he played in it, who was the grey-haired gentleman who sat down and told everybody what to do of all the Thunderbirds. Oh, him, yes, yes, yes. Uh, so the dad... Essentially, I mean, I should say, it's easier to just say the dad. (laughs) (laughs) I always felt sorry for the one that was up on the space station on his own. I mean, that was... They can't can't have liked him very much. He must have got a bit lonely up there. No. Poor fellow. Yeah, I mean that is something for the ages being the uh, it really being is. the voice. and it's interesting to put a face to the to these voices, isn't it? I mean he's fine in this, there's not much But he sort of just comes in, it's sort of he's just the cavalry that comes in at the end, isn't he? Yeah. It's, uh and sorts them out. Um it's a little bit of a cop out though, isn't it? I mean, just yeah. with the having having someone yeah, coming in and saves the day, but um without any real Build up to it. He does have a connection but, to Cliff Richard, of course, who's in our series. Oh yes, connection yes, yes, to Cliff that? Richard is once again Thunderbirds because they made the movie oh. Thunderbirds are going. Of course, Cliff Richard Junior. Yeah, yeah, Cliff Richard Junior. When he was singing <laughs> "Shooting Stars." That's right. With him and the shadows uh, yeah. are there. Presumably Hank Jr. and Bruce Jr. and all the yeah, others yeah. Jr. They're, they're, are in there as well. The little puppets of them are quite beautiful. Pictured there with yes. Burns guitars, I might add. Burns. That's the right, it's the Burns English phase guitar of, um, makers, yeah. So it's Burns of, uh, era right. shadows. As, yep, as yep, yep. Uh, you probably don't know, folks, but I own a Burns guitar. You uh, do have a beautiful Burns yeah, guitar. Beautiful, Salmon pink, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. so it's, uh, it's a lovely thing. It gives me great pleasure. Oh, but let's move on from there before I get yes, excited. But I told you to wipe it down before you hand it back. <laughs> but, <it's>, um, <laughs> but there's an, the last sort of face of the main cast. That Well, not counting the bloke in the, um, uh, in the cafe. The morose but man. never speaks. The morose Richard man. Richard Turner. Yep, yep, yep. He's a great yeah. example of what this film gets right. It's just a visual gag yeah. that's repeated yep. throughout the film, isn't it? But it's just while everybody mm. else is going crazy, and you, you have what happens in a lot of these pop movies, is th- these girls swooning, and I love watching girls swooning uh, fakely in yeah. movies. <laughs> um I just think it's it's wonderful, you know. You can just see their face looking up at the director who goes, and now swoon. And they have to make... They, they have all different sorts of swoon face, dreamy face. I, I love it. Um, and, of course, there's a lot of that in this. And then it cuts to this older, middle-aged, morose man with a completely blank, unimpressed imp- expression. I think it's lovely. A lovely sight gag. Because yeah, he's there at the beginning when it's just a, a run-down cafe. Yeah. And the whole thing changes around him, but yeah. he's still there. Exactly yeah, it's the lovely. Same. Doesn't say a word, but he's, he's good. But the last face of the main cast, playing the secretary to the um, to the record company guy, is Marianne Stone, the hugely yeah. prolific Marianne Stone, who is sort of the female counterpart to Sam Kidd. She is. In, in, uh, of 200, this era. Uh, over 200 movies she was in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just a every. It seems like every other movie made in Britain from sort of the 50s through to the 70s or early 80s had Marianne Stone yeah. in it. And she's one of these, she's not always a big part, but she's always, she's always there. Well, as you say, she's very yeah. Sam Kidd in that respect. You know, sometimes she had yeah. a bit to do, like he did, 
Um, a lot yeah. of times she had almost nothing to do, but was you, you'd still spot her. She had a very yeah, memorable yeah. face, actually. High cheekbones. Very striking. With that shock of black hair. She was certainly striking mm. looking, and she could look yeah. very attractive. Well, that was used to good effect in um, Lolita, mm. Kubrick's Lolita, which is probably her most famous or most well-remembered role, as Peter Sellers' companion in the movie. Yes. Isn't she? And she's there in this sort of rather striking, sort of slightly fetishy garb. She, very much so. And I don't think she has a word to say in the whole movie. No, she doesn't say anything. Um, yeah. Or, or if she does, but, I mean, it's very, it's, it's very minor. She's always there judging. Very sort of myster- yeah, very sort of mysterious mm. character. Yeah, judging mm. proceedings. Of course, my yeah. my first memory of her, the first time I was conscious of, well, I don't think I was that conscious of her at the time, but when. Mm. I knew of Marianne Stan. I went, oh, she's from A Hard Day's Night because, of course, she is the uh, journalist that interviews Ringo in the famous oh. scene where they're all being interviewed at that cocktail party. None of them could yeah. get a drink. None of them could have a bite to eat. Yeah. Um, yeah, you yeah. know, and so uh, she interviews Ringo. Is that the, are you a mod or a rocker? I'm a mocker. No, I'm a mocker. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is her. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was also in nine or so of Carry On movies. Yeah, um, she's in quite a few of those. Isn't so she? more connections. Usually with a fag hanging out her mouth. Yeah, yeah, more connections to Jim Dale, of course. There, one of the people. Of course, in our yes, series. yes, yes. I mean, it's easier to list the films she wasn't in than the ones she was in. Yes, she's just in. <laughs> and relevant to this series, she was in Catch Us If You Can with the Dave Clark Five. Oh, okay. Yeah. So she was in Hard Days Night and Catch Us If You Can. A great career, really fantastic career. Too many to name, but uh, she doesn't play a major role in this. Um, she's light relief, really, isn't she? Well, it? you say that. I don't, she's sort of the person that tips off our protagonists yeah. that the uh, record company guy is, is up to something. Yeah. She sort of has a pang of conscience, doesn't she? And, yeah. uh, and And tips them off. So... It's kind of an important role in the what there is of the plot, you know how that how that goes. She had charisma though, Marianne Stone. Yeah, oh, she certainly did. Certainly yeah. did. Baby, why you standing out there in the cold? You gotta get some loving after you've been told. You gotta have someone who's gonna hold you tight. You gotta have someone who's gonna treat you right. Why don't you come in and be loved? I get dizzy at your touch I feel just like a fellow who has had too much Why don't you come in Come in I want to do most anything the 
to the music i think that's that's covered the actors let's move on to the music and let's start at the very beginning because playing on the variety hall stage before uh, joan gets her go is a genuine singing star of the era who was dennis lotus he was up there with dickie valentine who we saw in six five special yeah in in that sort of he was the younger the the young cults of the uh, of that sort of sinatra Band singer, yeah. Uh, well, he Sinatra actually singing star. He actually worked type. with Dickie Valentine and Lita Rosa oh, of How Much Is That Dog in the uh, Window fame uh, yes. in the Ted Heath band uh, yes. in the early fifties. So they all, I mean, Ted Heath okay. really was the biggest band of his. I suppose obviously there was Joe oh, yeah. Loss and everything. They were traditional dance bands, so they were floor fillers mm. sort of dance band yeah. thing. But they had the, the premier vocalists, British vocalists, of which obviously Dennis Lotus was one. And as he demonstrates in this, he's a good vocalist. Um, yeah. Good looking yeah. chap. Um, yeah, chari- good charisma. Yeah. He had all the building and- blocks of it, that sort of rich 50s vocal style, which yep. obviously didn't translate to the rock and roll era. Um, no. As we were saying earlier, I mean, it's 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 bad luck for that generation of that type of singer um, mm. who were still young. They yeah. would only have been, you know, in their 20s at the time. Mm. And you've got him, you've got Dickie Valentine, of course, Frankie Vaughan over here. Yep. And um, Johnny Ray in America and people like that. They weren't old and they were about to reach the prime of their yeah. career. And then rock and roll came along and mm. suddenly they were old hat. I mean, Frankie Vaughan among them had the best run up at an actual pop yeah, career, yeah. didn't he? Because of course he did Bur- yeah, Baccarat's yeah. Oh, The Tower of Strength is a something I'll never be. Yeah, yeah. And he, he did sort of cross <laughs> over to, to uh, pop a little bit. And of course yes, he, he made. Uh, let's make love with Marilyn Monroe as well, and uh, Eve Montand yeah. uh, in the early sixties yeah, yeah, yeah. as well. So I mean, he had a really yeah. good and career. And he sustained but, it, and he sustained it probably better than any of the others in Britain. Yes. I remember him on Blankety Blank, um, <laughs> Blankety Blank, as one of the panelists there, and yeah. there's Dawson doing the leg kick thing. And I, actually talking about the leg kick, I, I, I remember, um, I do remember Pete Townsend. Yeah, uh, more than once has mentioned because uh, Pete Townsend of the Who, his dad was a dance band. Uh, mm. Musician in the Squadronaires. He was a sax player. The sax player. The famous Squadronaires, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Frankie Vaughan used to sing with them. They would back mm. him. And Townsend, as a, a kid or a teenager, would be a young lad. Yeah. Impressionable. Well, he did. This is where he started getting the idea that pop music might be a, a good uh, thing to be in. Um, but he used to watch Frankie Vaughan and 
Vaughn would do his leg kick. That, you know, give me the moonlight, give me the girl, leave the rest <laughs> to me and do all that and do all the leg kicking thing. And yeah. Townsend said it was like, you know, a proto version of Tom Jones, you know, with his hip shaking and leg kicking and everything. It was, he drove the girls wild. Yeah. And every time he'd do the leg kick thing, the girls would scream and go crazy, all the young girls. One time, Townsend was in the audience, uh, watched Vaughn doing his thing, give me the moonlight, da-da. nothing, nothing. And afterwards, he went backstage and sort of perplexed and said, what happened? And it turned out there was one of the younger rock and rollers, I think um, uh, probably Marty Wilde or somebody, or Jess Conrad, was on stage mm. in the first half of the show. Yeah. And suddenly, just on, in that one fell swoop, the Yeah, the, the trend, audience, they passed, the baton was passed unwittingly. Yeah, at that, in one fell swoop. Yeah. And, Vaughan, and Vaughan's career was interrupted. And, and that whole generation... Yeah, that whole yeah, generation. Yeah, I mean, you worked. mentioned them, you know. I mean, real talented artists, yeah. but just in the wrong place. You know, Dickie Valentine, as we said in Especially the last one, was a very accomplished Valentine. performer. Very accomplished. Mm. And as you said, Johnny Ray uh, yeah. probably translated a bit more to rock and roll than yeah. some of the others. He was definitely but... laying the groundwork a little mm. bit in some of his mm. stuff, wasn't he? Yeah. And anyway, so Dennis Lotus, yeah, and he's still with us. He went on, actually, incidentally, he went yeah, on to... Yeah, he's 93 um, odd now. 95, in fact, as we speak. 95. He, went, he did some straight acting roles as well. He did. A couple of years after this, he's in the first British movie that was made by Milton Sobotsky and Max Rosenberg, who went on to do Amicus. Mm. movies uh, whose career although it's largely in horror often did um music movies as well they did it's trad dad um mm. a few years later and things like that um and often incorporated bands and musicians into their and, and vocalists into their films and they'd done a couple of rock and roll numbers in america came over to britain and their first movie over here was called either city of the dead or horror hotel and it um, yeah. and it's set in a, it's set in America, but it's um, got a British cast doing not terribly convincing uh, American accents. It's got Christopher Lee in it and Valentine Dial and various people. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and Dennis Lotus is uh, the hero in that, and uh, in a straight acting role. I don't think he sings in it in it one bit. But well, no, yeah. He, so he he was able to diversify after the oh, after he did the quite a bit of acting. He was hit. Alan A. Dale in. Uh, the Sword of Sherwood Forest. Oh, yes. And he was also uh, in a straight role uh, in She'll Have to Go, which was a oh. comedy with Bob Monkhouse. And he was in What Every Woman Wants as well, which was also a, a comedy, a domestic, you know, sex comedy. He was definitely making movies, making music, never really had massive hits. Um, but no. was always very, very popular. Yeah, yeah. A fine yeah. career, really, which, if it had happened even five years earlier, would have yes. been probably a household name now, as opposed to being only remembered by people like us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like we said earlier, is a, shown as an example of the changing of the guard of, uh, of music. Yes. Of music here, where all the kids are wearing... Dennis Lotus t-shirts at the beginning and they were and wearing later, Terry Dean, wearing Terry Dean ones, yeah. yeah. So then the next music a band we hear are actually unseen because they're on a yes. jukebox. And it's when the three protagonists are touring around the various coffee shops yeah. in London. They go, probably old Soho, they go and they hear a song called Dynamo, which is a song we hear in two yeah. versions. First of all, we hear it on a jukebox in kind of a sort of big band kind of arrangement. Um, and that is by... Terry Kennedy in his group. And as I understand it, Terry Kennedy was one of the members of the Dean Aces, who were Terry Dean's yeah. backing group. 
Um, so we hear it there. They're unseen. But we then cut to them sitting in a coffee bar watching an actual skiffle band perform the same song. Yeah. Um, again, sort of showing a changing of the of the musical guard. And the group they see playing is the group, and I never quite know how you pronounce it, is either Lehubu or Les yeah. Hobokes or Les Hobo, I think. Or Les yeah. Hobos, I think it's probably how you pronounce it. Um, Les Hobos. It's, yeah, it's, it's but... a hobo thing, isn't it? You know, like, yeah, Les Ho- moving yeah. around. It's trying to simultaneously give an American hobo railroad guy image and also yeah. probably a French bohemian thing at the same time. Yeah. Not I, nothing I to do with the littlest hobo, which was a series no. in the nineteen seventies and eighties. But there is a voice that dogs. keeps on calling yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're an interesting thing. One of the sort of the second tier of the skiffle phenomenon. Yes. Yeah, obviously thousands of bands uh, famously uh, playing you know took up skiffle. And they were they made a few recordings. They they um they remembered, remembered for a couple of things. First of all, they had um, a vocalist called Keith Lardner, who is seen here, who was one of the few people of colour on the yes, scene. Yes, he was, yeah. And the pop scene generally mm. uh, in Britain at the time. Um, and also, they have the dubious distinction of being the first band to drop an F word in a pop song <laughs> in Britain. They... Um, the, 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 it, they did a it's version Mama of... It's Mama Don't Allow, uh, isn't it? It's Mama, Mama Don't, Don't Allow. They did a version yeah, of Mama yeah, Don't Allow. Yeah. Yeah. And the guitarist, Les Fags Bennett... Who was a very good guitarist. Yeah, yeah. The story goes, I showed up at the studio and Les Fags Bennett was put out to discover that the producer had uh, installed a session guy. There was already a session player there waiting to do the, the twiddly guitar bits, the solo. And... The song would go on, and if you hear the song, there's sort of a break. Mama don't like no drumming in here. Mama don't like no, you know, bass playing in here. And it gets to the guitar bit. Mama don't like no guitar playing in here. And they do their usual cue for him to play, which is play it, fags. And unfortunately for him, it's the session guy playing, not him. So they can shout, play it, fags. And you just hear him go, fuck off, in the background. <laughs> and it's there. You can just about, you can't quite hear what he says, but it's definitely a cough going yeah. on. And that's that is alleged to be um, the, the first, first F word dropped yeah. years before the Beatles and um, and Hey Jude, where apparently you can hear John Lennon utter one in the background of Hey Jude. That's one of the <laughs> claims to fame is they dropped the first F bomb in a in a British pop song. Marvelous. And again, it's it's emphasised in the skiffle popularity, which yeah. was. 58 was probably the peak year of the Skiffle yes, phenomenon, was. wasn't it? it I was, mean, it had been going was... for, for a while before then, but it was then yeah. where it was at its chart peak, you know, yes. where things were charting. Yes. And men- speaking of which, we go to Nancy Whiskey, who appears in this, of course, had that big hit with Chas McDevitt with Freight Train. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a- and also, as are Sonny Stewart and his Skiffle Kings. They are. Who is a band that I found very, um, very mysterious. I could find almost nothing about. They do a song called Let Me Lie, which is a really sort of Lonnie Donegan-y kind of song. And I could find very little information about this lot. They appeared to, at one point, be associated with a guy called Steve Bembo, who was a popular folk guitarist at the time, a big influence on David Graham and people. But I don't know if he was actually a member of the group or whether he just arranged, yeah, did arrangements for them or something. Um, and all I really know about them is that Sonny Stewart himself left Britain to go to Germany, as a lot of bands did in the early 60s, and sort of went full rock and roll and had a few hits and made a few recordings on German labels uh, over there. All right, OK. So that was him. And also, um, the guitar that he's playing in this... Yes. 
we spotted, didn't we? No, no. We no, did. What was it? It was a. Uh... So yes, you had spotted a connection of guitars between this yes. guitar that is played mm. in here and a very fine book by Billy Bragg. Uh, yes, which is Roots, Radicals, and Rockers. Which, uh, if you're interested in this era at all, you've probably already read this book. If you haven't, yep. you absolutely must read this book by Billy you Bragg. You really must, yeah. Um, really, and on really the cover good. of that book was a white guitar. Matt comes, came to me and said, I think this guitar is the same, if not exactly the same. Yeah, as it might even be the guitar. Movie. Yeah. And yes. uh, with my uh, slightly perverse interest in <laughs> guitars of this era, I was able to identify it. I could see the headstock and the, the badge was a Hofner. And mm. with a bit more digging, we discovered that it, it was... Dun, dun, mm-hmm. dun. It, it was a Hofner Club 40. Hofner, Hofner Club, Club 40. 40. Yeah, um, or a variant of now, and we understand yes, about guitars they, of this age is is that they they made a number of different variants of them, and I'm yes. not saying no two guitars were the same, but there were so they, they would come up with much. the same body and then but slightly different headstock, yeah. so or it seemed to depend on what what um, what they had available had in the in the pot, yeah, I what knobs they had to hand, yeah, which yeah. is uh, well, it's, which is often a dilemma, yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> What is a girl to do? <laughs> Such a disappointment for a young girl. The other thing I like about Sonny Stewart uh, mm. is that they do that skiffle thing, which is also demonstrated mm. on that cover, and that mm. is they look incredibly earnest. Oh, yes. They're committed it's, to this performance. It's the skiffle face. Yeah, it's the skiffle face. So it looks like it's people of limited talent, but... Uh, but doing it earnestly personified. Yes, yes, it is. Mm. Yeah. If ever there's a, a phrase that would sum up Sonny Stewart and the Skiffle Kings in this movie, it's that. There we go. I think. And he backs Sonny Stewart and Skiffle Kings back Nancy Whiskey. That's right. The other big star of the uh, of yeah. the Skiffle. Yeah. And I guess yeah. Let's talk about Nancy Whiskey now because she was. Um, she sings Johnny O in this. She had Johnny O, which is a, another sort of sped up folk song, a bit like. Mm. Um, uh, uh, Freight train, mm. very much in the stuff, and I think the recording that she's miming to in this is her with the Chas McDevitt skiffle yeah. group, who aren't seen here. Yeah, and obviously Freight Train was a was a huge hit. Yeah, if you think yeah. about the three big hits of um, or enduring songs of the skiffle period, it's Lonnie Donegan doing Rock Island Line, it's the Vipers doing Rock Me Daddy, Don't You Want Me Daddy, mm. and it's Nancy Whiskey and Chas McDevitt mm. doing Freight Train. They're the three big ones. And Johnny O has obviously done it in exactly the same kind of arrangement. But she was at Nancy Whiskey was a she was a serious folk singer called Anne Wilson uh, from Scotland, and she was sort of on the fringes of the skiffle scene and had sort of hosted the Studio Skiffle Club at the Princess Louise Pub in Hoburn, which is a beautiful pub. If if you ever find yourself in London, and let's say after lockdown, when we're finally allowed to go to the pub properly, um, check out the Princess Louise. It is an absolutely beautiful pub. Even the toilets are ornate. It's got the most wonderful carvings and everything inside. It's a really gorgeous looking pub. Um, and it was one of the hotbeds of the Skiffle scene. Yeah. And Nancy Whiskey came to prominence associated with that and signed with the Chas McDevitt group, but she only signed for six months. And during this period, they had freight train. And this, yeah. I get the impression with her appearance here, she's basically fulfilling her contractual obligations it, it, before it, she goes back to becoming a serious folk singer again. It does seem to have a large slice of that, doesn't it? Mm. 
I think so. And uh, yeah, and it's fine. And she's backed here by Sonny Stewart in his Skiffle Games, but I don't think that's them playing. No. And the other thing is, I wonder if we're meant to think they're the same band or not. It's clearly Sonny Stewart and his Skiffle Kings in different clothes. But are we supposed to think, is the casual viewer meant to think, oh, you know, it's another group and they've just saved money by dressing the Sonny Stewart band up no. in, different, in different togs? Or um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Absolutely. Well, she, as you say, she almost certainly wasn't working with Chas McDevitt anymore in this. No, not by this point. You know, so they yeah. would have just used the band that was to yeah. hand, and quite sensibly, I would have done the same in their boat. So I don't <laughs> think it matters. Yeah, yeah. No, mm. indeed. She's got both an earthy and an airy voice, if I can put it that way. Yes. Yeah. No, yeah. a good singer, and mm. and had a respected career as a folk singer. Mm. You know, uh, after this period, I never had another big hit uh, from this period. But then again, you're not supposed to in folk music. Um, <laughs> the, the more commercially unviable it is, the 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 the, the better quality Absolutely. the folk. Um, but yeah, that's fine. And we'll talk about her again when we and and the Chas McDevitt group uh, when we come to the Tommy Steele story where they show yes. up in that doing doing freight train. So we'll talk about them more then. Fabulous. And also in the recording studio sequence, we see Terry Dean himself recording the frankly nauseating Candy Floss. But here we do at least catch a glimpse of his actual backing band, the wonderfully named Dean Aces. Yeah. They were a good band full stop, but um, most famously on uh, on drums was Clem Catini. The great Clem A young Clem Catini. Who went on to, again, we talk about Marianne Stone. Um, it's easier to say what she's not been in than what she has. Same goes for Clem Coutinho. It's easier to say what he hasn't played on than what he has. After Terry Dean, he went on to be a, a regular go-to guy for Joe Meek. So he's on uh, he's on Telstar and quite a few hits that um, Joe Meek put together. He did loads and loads of session work. He was in Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, shaking all over. Yeah, that's that's Clem Catini on the those wonderful drum fills in Shaking All Over. That's him. Yeah, he just went on and on and on, and he had an absolutely massive Fantastic career. Drummer. He's played with everyone from Lou Reed to Clive Dunn, from the Kinks to Sir John Betjeman, Cliff, Paul McCartney, and is said to have played on at least forty-two number one singles. And even about ten years ago, Paul Weller used him on his Wake Up the Nation album. Huh. He appears on that. I did not know that. Yeah. Cruelly, he's played by James Corden in Telstar. That's right, in the movie Telstar about Joe Meek. I mean, I know I know he carried a little bit of timber back in the day. Uh, he was a solid, he wasn't a skinny fellow. Yeah, he, he wasn't carried a, a little fellow, bit of timber, but, but I don't think quite as much as James Corden. He wasn't Corden. James Corden, son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not young James Corden, son. Although he himself is in the movie of Telstar as well. He plays a chauffeur. He has a cameo there, because some of the people yeah. who they're portraying appear themselves as other characters in the movie Telstar. Um, yeah. And that's a good movie, actually, listeners. It is a good movie. It's a bit out of our remit for this series. Yeah. But it's a good film, Telstar. Interesting movie. It's a decent film. And actually, as much as I actively don't like James Corden, and uh, we won't mm. get into that, uh, but as much as I actively no. don't like James Corden, it's quite a decent performance from him in that particular film. He does so, give a good performance. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Yeah. And then I guess there's a couple of the, the minor people in the recording sequence of the film. There's Sheila Buxton doing the in between age, who's oh, which yeah. is the American title for the for the movie. She sings the in between age. Which is yeah, she's pretty dire, isn't it? It's not um, good. No. I mean it, it, by any scale or weight or measurement, it has not translated well to the modern era. No. And the fact this is the alternate title for it when it was sold yeah. in America. Yeah. You know, Americans would have wanted to you know 
some hard driving rock and roll American kids. Yeah. Not not that, but and equally not translating to the modern era is Murray Campbell with his oh, trumpet God, playing another the dirge, Balmoral another theme melody. He's, he's not as irritating as the young uh, tartan trousered. <laughs> Rock and roller, oh, we Jackie six, Dennis, we your, Jackie your Dennis, nemesis, we Jackie Dennis from from six five special who can frankly do one, but uh, yeah, no. Tell but, you what, Jackie Dennis is going to hear this one of these yeah, days. He will. Come on, where you live. Well, I don't mind. I stand by my opinion, Jackie. No, <laughs> um, but yes, it's um, yeah. Murray yeah. Campbell does his thing. Yeah, I understand that Murray Campbell uh, went on to be a good music educator. So, yes, uh, yes. Uh, less said about well, Murray Campbell and Sheila Buxton, the better. Uh, yeah, in this uh, Sheila movie. Buxton was a BBC sang with the BBC Northern Dance Orchestra. She was from Manchester. That's well, all there I you know go. About it, really. That's yes. all we need to know. We do have bigger fish to fry. Yeah, and probably the most respected musician seen here. Not probably, definitely, definitely. Yes, you're right definitely the most respected musician we see in this movie is we see Phil Seaman, the legendary mm. jazz drummer Phil Seaman and his group uh, doing a song called Lower Deck. And he mm. was one of the most respected and influential uh, drummers of his era. Again, we were talking earlier about um, Tony Crombie uh, coming out of bebop. Yes, we did. And yeah. being one of the pioneering beboppers with Ronnie Scott and various other people uh, and Tubby Hayes and that. Phil Seaman was right there with them. Yeah, so he played with with Ronnie Scott and Tubby Hayes as well. Yeah, um, yeah. And Stan Tracy and a lot of those other great uh, British jazzers of the yeah, era. Yeah. And also then later with Alexis Corner and, and Georgie Fame. Yeah. Well, he was a big influence. He was a mentor, both good and bad, to Ginger Baker. He was, yeah. He was Ginger Baker's uh, sort of introduction to the well, to to everything. To 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 world, he introduced Baker to sort of African music and rhythms, and sort of a lot of a lot of hardcore jazz. Although Ginger Baker was already playing jazz because they met at the Flamingo Club that we m- mentioned in the uh, first half yes. of this episode, and. Um, but unfortunately, he also introduced Ginger Baker to hard drugs, which is probably uh, uh, not such a good thing. But well, it certainly wasn't a good thing for Phil Seymour. Actually, it wasn't a good thing for either yeah. of them. But uh, he started uh, off actually uh, playing for Nat Ganella, and Nat That's Ganella right. who was mentioned in the first half. Yeah, was a, a, a great uh, trumpeter and part-time yeah. vocalist of the yes. the, the British. Dance hall big band era from the 30s. So he worked, Nat Ganella yeah. worked with the great, great Al Bowley back in the 30s. He did, yeah. yeah. Our, fir- our first true pop star. Our yeah, the, pop star yeah our first true yeah. pop star and our first great pop export to the United States as well. So yeah. uh, Nat Ganella was a contemporary of, of Al Bowley's. Yeah. And, and that's where Phil Seaman got his start as a professional it drummer. It did, yeah. As a young 18-year-old, yeah. he played with Nat Ganella, good grounding, went on to play with yeah. Joe Loss, um, mm. and then was used regularly by Jack Parnell, he of the Sunday Night at the Palladium fame, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, but it's, it's as a bebopper that he's best... It yeah, is. That, when that he got to the Ronnie that, Scott yeah. place, Kenny Baker, Jimmy Dusha, uh, all yeah, those yeah. sort of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was held in such high esteem that when they were mounting West Side Story mm. in the West End for the first time, Leonard Bernstein himself 
yes. uh, requested Phil Seaman as as to be the drummer in, in the, the West End. In yeah, the, in for the, the West End production, yeah, yeah. absolutely, and, yeah. and and with good reason. I mean, if you're getting asked, you know, Bernstein's looking at who the best guys in London in the, in mm. Britain. Well, that's a that's a fair endorsement. Yeah, yeah, and um, and he would have had um, probably a much grander career had drugs not um, not ravaged stymied, him. Yeah. ravaged him, and they yeah. really did. And uh, really I mean, did. he did. He worked right through the sixties, um, but it became more intermittent. Um, and by the yeah. end, by the turn of the seventies, he played in the initial incarnation of Ginger Baker's Air Force, which was his yes, band after that's right. Cream yeah. and Blind Faith. Yeah. He formed a large scale sort of rock stroke jazz band and yeah. phil seaman was one of the one of the members of that and it, and you've got to remember he would only have been in his early 40s at the time so it he wasn't was, like i think he was, was 42 yeah he wasn't massively old yeah and he died yeah in the very early 70s at the age of 42 it was a a huge loss and um much you can see his foot in his face in um in this very movie oh he doesn't look where, great in this. He, he, he's, he's he's about to nod out in this doesn't he he's, mm. uh, he, he looks very uh i mean he must um, be quite quite young in this but he, yeah, look he looks it. quite well refreshed he looks quite well well refreshed in this movie um but thank goodness he is in this movie it's a valuable bit of footage even if it's only a brief yep. brief snippet of them it's a valuable bit of footage of them doing their thing and and if, interestingly, that they use a clip from this in the movie Beware of Mr. Baker. Okay. The great documentary. If you've never seen it, I'd highly recommend you watch Beware of okay. Mr. Baker, uh, the film about Ginger Baker. And okay. when he's reminiscing about his association with Phil Seaman, they use a clip from this very movie, which yeah. may be one of the few extant clips of him, him in action. Yeah, and so it's valuable for that. And in fact, I remember when we were first watching it, we were each at home. And it was on Talking Pictures TV, yeah. and I remember te- uh, messaging you and going, "Yeah, it's Phil Seaman. It's Phil Seaman. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a bit at odds with some of the other music here, but all the but the better for it because it's good. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's it's, it, it's good quality music. You've got to look at these rock and roll films and know that mm. they are trying to pull together a sort of <clears throat> almost rock and roll cabaret, and mm, mm. it only reinforces what I was saying earlier in the piece, and that is during the 50s, there was such a broad church of of music and they really didn't know what was going to come out of it as the most popular thing. So they would have regarded modern jazz and trad jazz and skiffle and the new folk yeah. movement that was coming through yeah. there and, calypso, and the forget. calypso movement as on a more or less equal par to rock and roll i think probably by yeah, this yeah. stage they could realize that rock and roll was in the ascendancy there but i don't mm. think they would have ever really yet be thinking that rock and roll was going to transcend all of these things and move into a totally different beast. I think they just yeah. thought, well, well, we're doing a, a a music film for the kids, so let's have a slice of rock and roll. Let's do a little bit of the old skiffle. Let's have Dennis Lotus for the older people. Let's have a bit yeah. of Phil Seaman for the serious jazz. You know, yeah, you can yeah. see how this is all cobbled together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To sort of attract as broad a base as, as is possible, because they really still don't know how to make... If you look at some of the later stuff that was in the 60s sort of pop movies, they don't have these sort of weird side acts. They tend to be a little no. bit more, 
you know, focus. It's a bit more compressed, isn't it? A little bit more. Yeah. As the, as the you, decade goes on. Yeah. Although you still get trad jazzers turning up quite late no, in the uh, uh, That's why I say as the, as the decade <laughs> yeah, goes yeah. on, because yeah, in those yeah, early yeah, yeah. ones, really, yeah. I, again, we're going to keep talking about this. Up until the Beatles, yeah, yeah. you know, until that point, you'd still get this wide canopy of artists. And yeah, then absolutely. it's fo- much more focused after that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so that's Good. the music, really. Yeah. So I guess before we wind up, we'll talk about the backroom people. Well, first of all, I mean, it's worth mentioning, we've briefly hinted at them earlier, but this was a butcher film. Yep, that's right. That's right. Butcher's so films. butchers have been going from, I mean, the earliest point, really, in British cinema, so the nineteen early 1900s. That's right. Well, certainly the studio had, Walton on Thames Studio. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Had been there before, well, before there was really a film industry to speak of, you know, they, they were making movies in a makeshift studio at Walton on Thames. Absolutely. So um, William Butcher founded the company and it started reproducing film during the Boer War. Wow. You know, I mean, it was, it, we're going way, way, way back here. That's 1899 to 1902. He was a chemist. So I guess okay. you're talking about film yeah. production as opposed to making of films. You're talking about the, the physical production of films. Well, a lot of the early record companies were actually furniture manufacturers yeah, and people absolutely. Who, were, who were making record players and they started making their own records to go with it. It's where yeah. a lot of the, the, the record companies started. And that's just ostensibly what's happened here. They started making films like East is East in 1916. Mm-hmm. and Grim Justice from the same year. So they're starting to make films then. And I mean, they weren't a high-budget film company. They were a low-budget no. well, film company. Well, the best-remembered films are uh, all B-pictures. Yeah. Aren't they? Yeah. They were sort of a B-picture house. Absolutely. So we move on to Donald Herman Sharp, Don Sharp, mm-hmm. uh, the Australian-born director, yeah, and uh, a firm hand on the tiller of this. I think so. Yeah, a good director who went on to have a really... It's probably the definition of a solid career, isn't it, that he had? Solid I mean, with bonus, yeah. Solid with bonus, yeah. <laughs> well, again, you've been down that club too, have you? Yeah, uh, there's not. <laughs> Do the special knock. He went on, he's most famous for his, I guess probably most famous for his association with Hammer Films a few years mm. later. He made a number of films for them. Kiss of the Vampire was one wasn't it? And um, Devil Ship Pirates. Yeah, Rasputin. Rasputin the Mad Monk, which is a very entertaining film with Christopher Lee as uh, as Rasputin. Yes. I think he's one of the more highly regarded uh, Hammer directors and certainly Kiss of the Vampire, yeah. although sort of outside of the usual milieu of that, is really highly regarded by horror fans. It is, yeah. I saw it fairly recently. It's not one of the... Dracula cycle no. and it approaches vampirism in terms of it being like a moral decay mm. more than a, a a kind of super well it is a supernatural but it, it approaches it more from the sort of moral and sort of yeah. devil worship side of things it's yeah it's it's a it's an interesting film that and that and one of a number he did for Hammer in the in the early to mid 60s yeah of course Rasputin the mad monk he made at a time when Hammer was really cutting costs. I know that Don Sharp was becoming disillusioned at that point with just the fact that oh, they, they, this is just 
a cost-cutting, money-making exercise. Of course, he went on to also do other ones with Christopher Lee, like the Fu Manchu movies. Oh, he did for Harry Allen Towers. He did the yeah. he did the first two of them, didn't he? He did. I understand that they're considered the two best ones. The best um, ones, very much so. I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't think the they were great. I don't think any of the Fu Manchu movies were great. No, and they're a bit dodgy by today's standards. Very dodgy of, by today's... Uh, racial standards. Uh, yeah, in yeah. terms of, you know, uh, cultural appropriation and everything. Um, yeah, quite yeah. rightly so but the first one in particular at least has elements of menace and some capable elements to it he did some second unit directing as well second unit for Carver Name with Pride second unit for Magnificent Men in Their Flying Machines okay which okay. was obviously quite a big movie. Um, yeah, very much an A picture, mm. isn't it? As a director, he did Rocket to the Moon, Jules, yes. the Jules Verne Rocket to the Moon, which the... is one of those films that, when I think back to my, and we've all got those movies, yeah. certainly people of our generation, when you think back to wet bank holidays, absolutely, um, it's one of those films that always seemed to be on on a wet bank holiday was the, the very entertaining Rocket to the Moon movie. Again with Terry and, Thomas, which was also magnificent yes. in a flying machine. And he made Psychomania in the early 70s, which has become something of a cult classic with yeah. Nicky Henson, Beryl Reed, and George Sanders in his last movie role. And that's a, that's a weird movie, but has gained a cult following, especially for its soundtrack, especially for its soundtrack. He did Our Man in Marrakesh, Talking Pictures' favourite there with uh, oh, yes, Tony yes, yes. Randall, who was obviously soon to do The Odd Couple. TV series. And he did The Curse of the Fly, interestingly, which is the uh, the British-belated third sequel to the original American Fly sci-fi horror film. In TV, he did, uh, and I'm going to name drop here with an actress I've worked with, Jenny Seagrove. Uh-huh. He did A Woman of Substance in the mid-'80s. Oh, yes. Yeah. And he um, he did the Callan TV spin-off movie yeah. with Edward Woodward. I remember seeing when I was probably too young to have watched it and finding it quite disturbing. Yeah. It was reasonably hard-hitting, Callan. Really good. But probably Sharp's best-remembered movie, almost certainly is, uh, in 78, he made the Robert Powell version of The 39 Steps. Yeah. The one with the famous sequence of him hanging off Big yeah, of, Ben. Off the Big Ben, the yeah. End. I mean, that was a pretty big-budget job there, right there, at the height of Powell's fame. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And later on, he returned to Hammer with Hammer House of Horror on telly yeah. in the early 80s. And, um, yeah, good for him. Uh, that's that's a good no, career. No, good, good, strong, solid career. Yeah. I really think that he was a director that wanted to do the best with what he had. Um, and yes. I think that's evident in the movie that we're reviewing here, The Golden Disc, mm. despite its slim basis and its exploitation ideals. I think Don Sharp wants to make the best picture he can make. Yeah, yeah. it is. It is. That's a good point. And as we say, he was married to the lead in That's this, right. Mary Steele. She, uh, as we said earlier, um, left acting to, to raise their family. And one of their children was a very influential producer and songwriter called Johnny Dollar, who was a pioneer of the so-called trip-hop movement as represented by bands like Massive Attack and Portishead and uh, and many more. And he, through his work with Nana Cherry, went on to produce the first Massive Attack album, Blue Lines, which is one of the... Seminal album, yeah. Yeah, real seminal album and defined the trip-hop genre and one of the key albums of its era, all of all time, really. And not only did he co-produce that whole album, he also co-wrote the single... Unfinished Sympathy, which is the breakout single from that yeah. album, which is, again, one of the defining singles of the of the era. It was even covered by Tina Turner 
Oh. She even had a crack at it. And he um, co-wrote Seven Seconds with... Um, oh, Naina Cherry, yeah. Yusu and Dawn, Naina Cherry. Did the Rise album with uh, Gabrielle later on. And probably would still be producing it. He, di- he died about 10 years ago, uh, sadly. Shame which, that, yeah. Um, yeah, a uh, real, real shame. Far too young, far too young. But uh, a really uh, influential producer and songwriter. Mm. And he was the son. Johnny Dollar was uh, actually Jonathan Sharp, son of... Uh, Don, Don Sharp and Don Mary Steele. Mary Steele. So there we go. Yeah. That's a nice little wrap around for, for that. Good yeah. good director. Well-respected director. Yeah. So uh, only remains to talk about perhaps the screenwriters, which were partly yeah. Don Sharp himself. That's right. And then the husband and wife team. Yeah, G and Don Nickel. Yeah. Who went on to work in American telly with all, all of the Mainly family telly, and, company yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah Freeze Company, the um, Jeffersons and things like that. Yeah. And it's a good script. It, it's... Um, it's like mm. I say, it's got lots of nice little humorous asides and things within it, and in fact, the very concept. And I don't know if it was the nickel couple or a couple of nickels, buddy. Uh, <laughs> hey, buddy, spare time, um, or um, or Don Sharp. But the idea of a independent record label, yeah, uh, in the late fifties was quite innovative. I mean, very perhaps so. Jeffrey Kruger had got Ember Records going by this point. But there weren't very many, and it's, it's interesting when, at some point in the script, when they go, right, that's the fifth and last record label when they're trying to haul their tape around at the beginning. Uh, that's the fifth and last. Well, and absolutely. Um, I mean, most mostly the record labels were big labels like EMI and Decca um, and Philips, yep. which yep. Uh, had, in in most cases, multiple smaller labels. EMI famously yep. with Columbia as its premier label and the Runt being Parlophone yes. shortly to become world yeah. famous with the Beatles. <laughs> um, the Beatles. But mostly it was those big labels dominating uh, releases. So you would, if you hawked mm-hmm. your stuff around and they turned you down, it was pretty much the end. So yeah. the idea yeah. of an independent label is, is... It is interesting that they've got that here, actually. Yeah, ahead of its time, we like, there were people like Dennis Preston and later on his protege Joe Meek who were independent producers yeah. who would then farm their stuff off but to actually start your own label was quite something and and that lit the touch paper for people like Island Records later on and Immediate Records and well, like any number as, Yeah as, I mean by yeah. the mid 60s there were plenty weren't there Yeah so there we go so in, an interesting concept within the script of this yep. of this movie yeah. yeah, a nice enough script for what it is. It does what's asked of it, and it's uh, and enough humour in it. It's economical, which is what we talked yeah. about earlier. It's economical. I wouldn't exactly call it slick. That might be going a little too far, but it is. <laughs> it is to the point, and it doesn't waste time, and it doesn't waste your time while watching it. Very nicely done. Yeah. Although I must just say, the idea of a combined coffee bar and vinyl record shop in one. Would that? I mean, isn't by today's standards that's hips to heaven? Yeah, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't be getting the rock and roll teens. You'd be getting people with massive great beards and vapes. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> that is hips to heaven. It'll be flat whites instead of espressos, right there. And also, we've got um, just very briefly we, the cinematography was a guy called Jeffrey Faithful, who again does a does a good job here. Certainly, when compared to uh, Rock You Sinners, Rock You, you Sinners, sinners rock, rock, yeah. but. Probably his best-remembered movie uh, was a few years later. He did the very well-remembered Village of the Damned, the adaptation of the John Wyndham Midwich Cuckoo story, which has some very innovative effects where the children's eyes glow when they're about to do their nefarious deeds. That's his best-remembered movie with some innovative effects in that. 
And, yeah, he doesn't let himself down in this. It's all right. There's some good sort of angled shots and things, particularly in the sequence when they're doing up the coffee bar. That's all right. And mm. uh, he went on to do The Terranauts, the, uh, the, your favourite movie, The Terranauts, um, <laughs> with, yeah, with, with Charles Hawtrey et al. Oh, um, what a cracker. So that's Jeffrey Faithful. And, uh, oh, the only, the only other thing, and it's something that I want to throw out before we finish oh, yeah. to you, the listener, is somewhere in among the kids in the crowd here, at some point in the movie, is the much-missed Batsy Bardo, Carol White. Yes. Uh, a young Carol White is apparently one of the kids in the, in, the, in the crowds here. Apparently. Well, apparently because I cannot see her. I've looked and looked. So I've watched this film, as have you, I'm sure, mm. many more times than any sane person really ought to have done. Uh, <laughs> Do you know... Same, same goes for what you sinners. I mean, that's I, far I, too I, often. I wasn't going to watch this again for at least a while. <laughs> but now, because of what you've just said, I might have to watch it again. Because <laughs> well, I White. haven't done a specific... Yeah. Carol White watch. Yeah, so she's in there somewhere. She is in there somewhere, folks. And if you can, if you can spot her, um, yeah, let us know. Let us know because I'd love to know where she is. I'm told she's there, but I can't see her. If you can see her, drop us a line. Yeah, tell us drop about us roughly us where know. she is in the film, or exactly even better. We can zoom in. We can zoom in. Okay, so that is the Golden Disc, 1958, Terry Dean vehicle. Yes, indeed. A reasonably successful thumbs up from the BP Moaka team. Absolutely. And we are moving on. Yes. Two decades. As far forward as we've been so far, actually. Yeah, and, and pretty uh, far considerably forward. Considerably further forward. forward. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. about time to shake it up and we're going to feel the noise oh, uh, we certainly will. in the yes. next episode of the podcast because we are moving to the 1970s. We're going to get down and get with it. Yeah. We're doing a, a broomy rock film, but don't worry. It's not Take Me High with Cliff Richard and the Brumberger <laughs> duet. Don't worry. <laughs> Although probably if this series survives long enough, that will have to happen. <laughs> then we but... will have to look at that at some point. Yeah. <laughs> but it is Ooh, not yeah. that. It is the premium brummies. It's Slade. We will Slade. be Slade in Flame on our next yes. episode here. So please do Slade in Flame. come yes. back to us for that. And we hope you enjoyed this double bill. Yes, indeed. Which has been the very dubious pleasures of Rock You Sinners <laughs> and the Golden Disc. Yes, indeed. So, um, till next time, thanks for listening. I've been Matt Bragg. And I'm still Gavin Lazarus. And join us next time for another edition of... Britpop Movies, Movies of a Certain Age. Britpop Movies of a Certain Age.